Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. Okay, welcome back to Coffee and Conservation. Today I have my friend and colleague Mark McConnell with us, Dr. Mark McConnell. Uh, he is a new professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture here at Mississippi State University. And we're going to kick today off with a little Farm Bill 101. Uh, it's, uh, the Farm Bill has a special place in both of our hearts. Mark always tells me it's utterly boring, and I disagree. Um, but Mark did his PhD at Mississippi State University, uh, as well as his master's. And before that, he was at LSU. Uh, you're a Louisiana native, right? I am from Louisiana. Okay. Um, so welcome. Good to have you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule. I bribed him with a caramel latte. We're going to edit that out of the show. <laughs> All right. Mark, tell us a little bit about your background uh, and your new position. Wait, your new position first here at Mississippi State. Yeah. So my new position is the assistant professor of upland birds and prairie habitat conservation. So I'll be primarily focusing on northern bobwhite and and agriculture and forestry systems. So we're look, looking at how we can increase bobwhite numbers in a way that is profitable to, to farmers and landowners, but I'll also be focusing on wild turkey, grassland birds, hopefully pollinators and other ecosystem services associated with sustainable agriculture. Awesome, all things, all things I love. Um, how does that relate to your farmer position at, at UGA? So there I was the extension wildlife specialist for the state. So I actually did a fair amount of extension work uh, focusing on agricultural systems and more generally just wildlife benefits uh, to conservation and agriculture. It wasn't primarily focused on bobwhite, but luckily bobwhite are a really good indicator for ecosystem health and a lot of farmers enjoy and like having bobwhites on their property. So you can use bobwhite as a as a kind of a, a hook to get landowners interested in other conservation practices that benefit butterflies and beneficial insects and water quality and things like that. Mm -hmm. I've been very curious, um, especially since I've started doing this podcast, you, you know, because when we work together in a department, we're always trying to collaborate. We kind of know what other people do as research, but we rarely ask how they got to where they are, kind of the pathways they took. And so I've been asking that to a few of my recent Yes, and uh, I find it to be really insightful. So tell me a little bit about how you got interested in conservation and wildlife and, and even how you decided to come back to Mississippi State kind of in your current role, just like the pathway. Because we can see the degrees on a CV, but that never really tells the full story. Yeah, it's a fair question. So like a lot of kids in the South, I grew up hunting and fishing and thought that uh, getting a degree in wildlife would keep me outside. It actually keeps me in the office more than anything else, as I'm sure you know as well. So I got into wildlife conservation purely out of my desire to, to be outdoors and have a profession that kept me outdoors. When I was um, an undergraduate at LSU, I started reading papers about bobwhite quail management, and I got really excited. Uh, I'd actually never seen a bobwhite. I didn't see a bobwhite until I was 21 years old. I still haven't seen one. <coughs> so don't worry. <laughs> we got to fix that. I know. <laughs> and... Uh, talking to my mother about it, it turned out my grandfather was a really big quail hunter in North Louisiana, and I worked on a farm in high school that 
was in the same area and I never saw a quail. And I was like, well, this is something's wrong here. So I just started reading more and more about it and just became fascinated with quail ecology. And a lot of that happened to be occurring in agricultural systems. And I was working on a farm, had a great appreciation for agricultural and agricultural producers and loved farm work and thought, man, if I could have a career that could marry those two things, it would be easy to keep me motivated. And You hit the jackpot then. I did. And uh, it's been mostly quail ever since. I've had a few deviations into waterfowl work and barely scratched the surface on some deer research. But uh, the, the appeal to come back to Mississippi State was, one, just an appreciation for the program here and the, the applied work we do in working systems. But also, I get to focus on Bob White here, which I it was not it was not in my job description to do that at UGA. So it was a chance to focus on Bob White and get back to the research I started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's exciting for you. Exciting for the family, I'm sure. Uh, just yeah, I've to, got no complaints. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So moving and taking that context, moving into the farm bill a little bit. Um, and so for any of our listeners who may not be as familiar with the farm bill, it's a massive omnibus bill um, that comes through the legislature about every five years um, and it covers a number of different topics related to food production, health, and nutrition. So agriculture, conservation, um, some crop insurance, some trade. Uh, big part, the, the major part of it is going to be um, our food assistance programs, like the SNAP program. Um, so it's a huge, huge bill, but the conservation title, Title II, is one of the primary ways we get conservation on the ground. So that's how we become more familiar with it when we're talking about conservation. You kind of need to know what's in it. You need to know how it works. Um, but so... How did, Mark, how did you first become familiar with the Farm Bill? Because when I first got into this, the scientific work we do, it's not the first thing you learn about. Um, but I've, I've grown to, to realize how important it is um, in the work we do. And so how did you first become familiar with it? So when I started my graduate, my master's research here at Mississippi State, it was working with Bob White quail in agricultural systems, and my advisor had mentioned that I needed to be very familiar with the multiple conservation programs and practices associated with the uh, Title II. So I started reading into it, and at the first I wasn't terribly motivated by it, and then I was at a, at a, at a meeting, and an old indig- individual actual legislation, and uh, it reads like stereo instructions, which... It's painful, which but... younger listeners won't know what that reference means, but it um, it's... It's important for me to understand the inner workings of the conservation practices and the finances to be able to translate that to landowners who want to do conservation work. I I completely agree. Um, admittedly, I read it as well, um, and it is painful, but it is so important. Uh, and really, if you're a scientist who who also works in conservation, it can be really important to be familiar with it too. Um, yeah, or an applied ecologist, you need field sites, you need to know where conservation is, why they do it, uh, the human dimensions that change the science that we do through through Farm Bill policy. It's just incredible. Yeah, and, and understanding what Congress is motivated by has been something I've really tried to focus on in the last few years because if they want to rely on some research to inform how they're going to draw up a policy, we've got to be producing the type of research that they can use 
And unfortunately, that has not been a focus often of, of wildlife ecologists in history is to do research that can inform policy. Mm-hmm. And so we try to do research now that, that, that policymakers can use to make informed decisions that hopefully are beneficial to the resources and to the landowners. Yes, yes, I totally agree. Um, so if I'm a private landowner or an agricultural producer, how would it be important for me to be familiar with the Farm Bill? Well, from a conservation standpoint, I can go into that, but even more importantly would be the things not in the conservation title. Initially, like you mentioned, crop insurance that's been increasingly uh, well-funded by Congress. Um, So there's a lot of other price support mechanisms that are in different parts of the Farm Bill that would be important to a producer. From a conservation standpoint, um, there's often parts of a farm or parts of a field that a landowner could probably make more money on with some other type of land use and understanding the farm bill and knowing what options are available to them and how their state has allocated funding to those gives that empowers that landowner to to know what his multiple options might be mm-hmm. to make a better decision and uh, so just kind of the general rule knowledge is empowering so if they know what's available hopefully they can find a way to employ it and use it yeah, and in that title, Title II, all the conservation programs, there's you know there's a number of different programs within that, but the basis of those is to provide, provide financial and technical incentives for folks to put conservation on the ground. Conservation that often uh, marries well with agricultural production and supports some of that agricultural production. So uh, the fact that it's incentive-based, too. I know historically some folks have been more resistant to um, – have government type contracts because it's their land they want to uh, use it how they how they wish to um, but from an incentive standpoint it's, it's an impressive amount of money that gets pushed from the federal government down to, to private landowners to incentivize conservation yeah so about right now about six percent of the the 980 billion billion dollar farm bill is entitled to and you're right, it's a lot of financial incentives. And an incentive we've, we've found out in this country, and we, uh, the conservation title in this country is kind of the landmark achievement uh, of, of ag policy that many other countries, most industrialized nations, are very jealous of because we've learned really quickly that there are some things we have to do regulatory, but the best way to get conservation on the ground and have a more f- multifunctional agricultural landscape is through incentive-based conservation. And t- Section 2 has is focused on incentivizing the stuff and f- versus making it regulatory. There are some regulatory things, uh, like swamp buster and sod buster, but generally most of the money is from incentive-based. And the research is very clear that landowners not only often want to do things for conservation, they either can't afford it, and these incentives sometimes, and more times than not, are the only reason they can't afford to take land out of production and do these things because it's hard to make a living as a farmer. Some years it's great, but more times than not, it's a challenge. Yeah, and we're particularly in a tough year this year with the amount of rain we've gotten. Um, and with, with the landowners I work with, too, you know, it never it never fails to amaze me how, how difficult and painstaking land management is, and even more so if it's your livelihood. If anybody thinks farmers have an easy job, they need to go work on a farm. <laughs> I, get, I hear a lot of complaints. Work outside where the hours are not, 9 to 5. Uh, and, in fact, I saw a great... Um, promotional video about farming and it was you know to the men men and women who work in acres not hours and yeah. I just found that to be particularly impactful because it's not it is not in hours no and it's 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 very challenging and you know farmers often get a bad rap for 
the negative environmental consequences that are a result of farming, but at an individual individual farmer level, there's not a farmer on the planet that who wants... Who isn't a land steward. That, who isn't a land steward. Yeah, they want to do the right thing. There's often hindered by finances or equipment or... Time. Or, or time or, or, or actually know-how. There's a lot of conservation things that aren't very intuitive mm-hmm. uh, right off the bat, and that's where our profession should come in to... Support that. Support and educate farmers and empower them to make good decisions. I totally I, I agree. Um, it's a it's a daunting job because there is so much to know. I think with most of the folks I have on the show, we end up talking about that, um, that it's more than just individual plant health and production. You know, it gets into all sorts of ecology plus uh, economics and equipment. Now, with all the new technology, there's a, a you know a burden of fancy technology and so yeah, the the amount of information is just incredible that they would have to know or have support around them to, to plug into their system. So give me give me one one or two at least or a real world example of how you've utilized these farm bill programs to get conservation on the ground. Just so we can give an example to our listeners of what we mean when we take it from like the legislation form of farm bill to on the ground supporting uh, conservation that I've used specifically, like in research? Right. Okay, yeah, one of the, I guess, better examples would be the, um, we've done a fair amount of research looking at uh, using technology to identify uh, low profitability sections of a field, and then we actually match that with uh, conservation programs or practices that are eligible on that acreage, and then we evaluate the economics of if they were to convert to that different land use. So we use the programmatic language in the farm bill that describes where this practice or that practice fits on a farm. And then we use the payments associated with that practice. All that language comes from the farm bill and we build that into a computer model. And then we kind of use it to show landowners where practice fits and then show them where it might be more profitable to take certain acres out of production and convert them to conservation to generate uh, greater revenue. So that's kind of the what I spend a lot of my time on right now is using the Farm Bill programmatic language to identify and illustrate conservation and economic opportunities that the Farm Bill provides. And how well received is that from the landowners you've worked with? When I go to them talking about quail only, it's 50-50. When right. I go to them talking about profit per acre, it's 99 out of 100 that are more interested. So we've I've switched in, in my in my limited career. I've been doing this for just right around a decade. I've completely switched how I talk to landowners. I really don't approach them with any wildlife conservation right off the bat. I approach them with an economic uh, issue. Right. I want to make more money for you and make your farming more efficient. And then a secondary objective would be better ecosystem services and quail are a good indicator of that. Yeah, I think that's such an important part of of the puzzle. Not every not every person that works in conservation approaches it in that way. A lot of times we start with wanting to talk about the water quality or the soil health or the particular species that we may be trying to conserve. Uh, but I find it also to be very impactful to start it or at least to have a, a conscious awareness of the that the profitability because it's a business. Uh, is the main part of the conversation. Yeah, and I think conservation professionals historically, even if they would have wanted to lead with that argument, they didn't have the data to support it. And so I think 
we've got a lot of farmers who've been told, hey, do this for butterflies or do this for soil, but no one addressed their bottom line. So we've kind of, we've tried to switch that where that is our primary focus. Uh, and I've, I've done this, I've talked about this stuff all over the country in front of large groups, small groups, and I give the resounding same answer. Somebody, some older farmer comes up to me and says, man, if everyone talked about it with that angle, we'd do a lot more. Mm-hmm. And so we use that to, we, we try to use the technology and the farm bill to empower ourselves, to empower landowners, uh, to make informed decisions that benefit them. Awesome. Um, okay, one last question. Uh, what are some of the drawbacks or challenges to the conservation programs or the farm bill policy, how, how it could be more effective, right? Because that's that's why we draw it, redraw it up every five years is because we got to tweak it uh, as we have more scientific information or can better better measure ecosystem services. We might be able to streamline those the payment efficiency of really paying for for conservation instead of practice based, which is also important. Um, but if you, if you have any drawbacks, challenges, or ways that could be more effective that immediately come come up. Yeah, so it's, it's an interesting question. It's kind of a two-pronged answer. There are challenges that are, would be observed by both producers and the scientists or the conservationists and, and, and hindrances, and then there are some that are probably specific to each group. In general, um, the Farm Bill is very complicated, and the number of conservation programs and practices are very detailed. Uh, every other Farm Bill, they either consolidate or expand. The, all the names and the practices of, you can't even keep up with the acronyms al- the alphabet soup of the acronyms and this practice now got rolled in with this one so it's complicated from that standpoint and that complication I think turns a lot of conservation professionals but especially agricultural producers it turns them away because it's it's very nuanced um, that's one I think hindrance the other is the economics are not very clear to the producer of what what could happen but in general, things we would, that I think the producers would say uh, that I hear a lot is the contracts are too long. They're very reluctant to enroll in a 10-year contract because they're worried that three or five out of those 10 years, they're going to be a bumper commodity mm-hmm. prices, and they're going to miss that economic opportunity. And that's that's actually, there's some options in this new farm bill that, uh, options in this new farm bill that are addressing that. <clears throat> and then from my standpoint, one of the challenges we face is getting Congress to support things that we have good science to back up. So we know, for example, the Conservation Reserve Program has a ton of benefit, and we know it can it can make measurable changes to ecosystem services on the landscape, but that's not always reflected in the price support that Congress allocates or the acreage they allocate. So in this farm bill, we got more CRP acreage, but at a cost of reducing the payments landowners would get, which creates a conundrum from a from a landowner standpoint and from a resource professional standpoint, so just just a yeah. few. we could go on on this topic. <laughs> right, <laughs> I know there's there's so many, but you you brought up some good points because I do think uh, because of the complexity of the language, I've noticed then um, that the interpretation of that can can vary um, too. But by, by the time it makes it on the ground, I mean it's supposed to all be interpreted the same, but when you have language that is so complex sometimes uh, 
contracts can be executed in different ways by well, different it, people. And it's kind of like the, the old saying, what you don't want to ever see how sausage is made. Laws are the same way. The, the language. <laughs> Who says that? That's a very common I'm going to use it again. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to see how sausage is made. You, you don't, don't want to see how bills are made. The language is there. It's written by lawyers and it's, <laughs> it's very nuanced. And as a result, you're right. Uh, even within different FSA offices or NRCS offices, sometimes it's interpreted differently. And that, that is a challenge. Okay, fantastic. Thank you, Mark. I know we will have you back on in the future, but we appreciate it. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.